Hello, this is a show from Radio. We're a group of stations bringing new and forgotten ways of making radio to our listeners. Delta to Yankee, Juliet Romeo. Each week we give artists the challenge to make radio that works across the whole of Europe and beyond. Delta to Yankee, Delta to Yankee, Juliet Romeo. Are you up for it? I'm Tom Rowe at Wave Farm. Today, Morton Feldman says Robert Ashley from an April 9, 2011 WGXC broadcast performed by Bill Hellerman and Max Goldfarb. Hellerman and Goldfarb perform Robert Ashley's Morton Feldman Says on April 9, 2011. Wave Farm Executive Director Galen Joseph Hunter introduces the broadcast and asks a few questions afterward. Hi, Max, and hi, Bill. Hello. Hi. Welcome. Should I start? You may start. Yes, please. Well, I'm here to do a piece um, <clears throat> by Robert Ashley called Morton Feldman Says. Uh, Robert Ashley is a very important American composer now, I think in his 80s, but uh, was the wild man of new music at one point in the 60s uh, with a very famous festival out in uh, Michigan called the Once Festival along with Alvin Lussier and uh, Gordon Mumma. And in 1964, he sat down with Morton Feldman, who was the uh, part of the triumvirate of new music, Cage, Feldman, and Brown, from the uh, 50s. And they had a conversation, and Bob uh, taped it, which in those days was uh, a pretty unusual thing. Very few people had tape recorders, and... Uh, they were, uh, I can speak from personal experience, uh, fraught with mishap. At any rate, he got a tape, and at some point a few years later, uh, Morty, I, I knew Morton Feldman, so I call him Morty. Morty was asked to submit an article to, I think it was Transition Magazine. Turns out it was Culture Magazine, but I think he told me Transition. And uh, he didn't want to write an article. So he asked Bob to transcribe the conversation we had had, which, again, in those days they didn't have the equipment they have today for doing transcription. So it was an arduous task with uh, turning the uh, compute, uh, computer, the tape recorder, on and off, rewinding, finding the spot, writing it down, and etc. Well, Bob figured that he's really interested in uh, human voice, spoken voice, as a musical instrument, as a musical uh, source. And he had done all this work, so he would make it a piece, <laughs> which he called Morton Feldman Says. And this is from a conversation in 1964. The requirement for the piece is that it be done by a composer, I am a composer, and memorized. And that there he did uh, interject um, a uh, interviewer uh, with his name on it, but it can be done by anybody, and it will be done today by Max Goldfarb, um, who will ask questions occasionally in what was essentially a monologue by Morton Feldman. Shall we start? Absolutely. Okay. During the past few years, I'm continually reminded of Peggy's remark. 
everything begins as a mystique and ends in politics. It seems that about 10 or 15 years after something new and original is done and has its first impact, that impact becomes a political one. That is to say, by the time the young composer gets in touch with a particular work, it is already in a power struggle with other works and other ideas. The intention, the aesthetic of the work may be a complete mystery to this young composer, but in the form of politics, it's not a mystery. It's very concrete. So, what does the young composer do? He becomes a revisionist. We know from history that it is the revisionist who takes things from that mysterious region of originality and gives those things a man-made rationale. It was true of Christ. Same thing with Luther. What was pure, for example, in the ancient Hebrew belief was too mysterious for many people. It came from a divine being. It wasn't human. Christ made it human. With Luther, it became even more human. I mean that the human being comes in and makes a synthesis, which he can work with comfortably, a concrete synthesis. And so what happens is that the original, that which was pure, that which was like nature, that which didn't seem to reflect the human point of view, is cast aside, or rather, to be more precise, is incorporated by the revisionist mind. Stockhausen is the perfect example of the revisionist mind in music. His whole attitude to the work that we have done is really not unlike Toynbee's evaluation of history seen through a Christian bias, that the Jews are a fossil race. I'm quite sure that Stockhausen feels that chance is now a fossil aesthetic. But then, I must not even use the word aesthetic. Remember that the revisionists do not see chance as an aesthetic. They see it as a process that they must humanize and present only in a very portentous technical fashion. This, of course, is done without any aesthetic goals in mind. That the revisionist wants to do is make a political impact. The revisionist wants power. It is in the nature of a revisionist to want power. It is in the nature of a revisionist to start a school. It is in the nature of a revisionist to want to convert. The revisionists are fanatics. But what they're fanatic about is always amazing to me because they've created nothing new. So... How does this change from aesthetics to politics affect you? That is, 
when you began working, if I understand your analogy, your concern was primarily aesthetic. But now that your aesthetic has become one of the ingredients in the political struggle, how does this affect your work? I find that the only way I can work today is not to think of the present, but only to think of the past, the past of my own life, where I worked without being conscious of the ramifications of my own actions in the world. I certainly don't want to create the impression by those religious analogies that I think I was some sort of deity. But there was a deity in my life, and that was sound. Everything else was after the fact. All realization was after the fact. Process was after the fact. Of course, what happens in the world when your work starts to become well-known is that you have to justify it. You have to make some sort of rationale. And even the most banal rationale is accepted, welcomed by people who should know better. For example, in some of my music, I leave the rhythmic situation quite free. That is, there are variable degrees of slowness, and the performer has freedom of duration. Several years ago, I mentioned to a very renowned colleague that in a certain piece, I had made a metronome marking of between 40 and 70, which is still relatively slow. And it was surprising how relieved this brilliant man was. You mean that to rationalize your art puts it into the political struggle? Certainly most composers are aware of chance now, and a lot of recent music uses chance to some fashion, to some degree, combined with other ideas. This, I guess, would be revisionist music. Most of it does seem sick. I mean, ailing, without conviction. The composers seem uncertain about just why they are using chance. In quoting... Peggy, do you mean that when a musical idea like chance gets to be part of the political struggle, its value really ends? Well, that's what happens when a composer gets caught up in the political struggle. The whole temperament of this period is basically an academic one. Academic because it is based on other people's work. That alone makes it academic. For me, there's no difference between the extreme mechanistic writing of Milton Babbitt and the extreme compulsive writing of Lamont Young. The reason that music is ailing is that everybody is still following the same historical process, that Malraux idea that art comes from art. Now, anybody who was around in the early 50s with the painters saw that these men had started to explore their own sensibilities, their own plastic language, each one very different. It's almost laughable when you read the criticism of the work of those days, when they were all lumped together as the New York school. Actually, the thing that made it a school was a powerful, mysterious idea. That is, 
they all searched within their own sensibilities for those energies, for everything connected with the painting. Now again, a few years later, what the young people all started to take from the work was its most superficial mannerisms, its brushstrokes, that which they thought was calligraphy, that which they thought were objects, which weren't objects. They started to build on the work of these people with what they could recognize as technical achievements. Now, never before was there a movement as fresh and new as the abstract painting of the 50s, that complete independence from other art, that complete inner security to work with that which was unknown to them. That was a fantastic accomplishment, especially as they weren't revolutionaries. They didn't want to bury the past. To be oneself, as well as art, that was the thing. I feel very close to that particular spirit. We didn't exchange intellectual ideas. Ideas didn't make the work. Unfortunately, for most people who pursue art, ideas become their opium. The sickness that you feel about the situation today is a piling up of multitudinous suggestions and multitudinous misconceptions, each tumbling over the other. There's no security to be oneself. There's only a total insecurity because people don't know who they want to be. This is not only true of the young people. This is true of Boulez. This is true of Stockhausen. You can see this in the way they have approached American chance music. They began by finding rationalizations for how they could incorporate chance and still keep their precious integrity. How can you have integrity when your whole life is based on the accumulation of ideas? Boulez began to work out a complicated schematic situation of systematizing chance by way of Mallarmé and Kafka. He tried to give it a literary justification. Stockhausen talks about science, about all the improbable things that become probable, and about all those things that are justifiably improbable in his work. But this work did not come through science, didn't come through Kafka and Mallarmé, came through a completely different world that did not need justification. That is what's important. When I wrote what I wrote, when I write what I write, I do not have to talk about Kafka. I don't want to make it human. I don't have to revise history. Then in order for the young composer to reach that situation where he doesn't have to justify himself, what direction do you think he should take? What, what prospects are there for him? In the Magic Mountain, the last paragraph begins. If thou livest or diest, thy prospects are poor. I feel that the prospects of the young composer 
are very, very poor because all he can salvage, even from the work that he finds important, the work that he actually loves, is the furthering of his technical facility. And the demands on that technical facility are becoming greater and greater. This is the age of Picasso. And we know what Picasso did as a young man. After 15 or 20 years, he started to look at Cezanne and to develop Cubism. What has that got to do with Cezanne? We all say yes. Look at what he learned from Cezanne. In a more crazy way, that is exactly what is happening in music. Look what he's learned from Cage. From Cage? It is Cage. You go to the various festivals and you see fantastic technical equipment. And all the time you know that the young composer has immorally been given the moral license to lead a parasitic life. You find the same thing in the universities. You find it in important centers like Tanglewood, where they're given this immoral basis for a really unproductive life. Quite recently, Lucas Foss tried to get me an appointment. It was for a chair at a large university. When he mentioned my name, the consensus was, yes, He's a very colorful figure, but what can he teach? What the schools and the important pedagogues are doing is just perpetuating a tragic syndrome, a tragic misunderstanding about what it is to be a composer. But then perhaps they don't think of themselves as composers. I think that composing for them is just an incidental activity in the power struggle of ideas. You used the word sick. The word sick is not sick enough. There's a perpetual cultural insanity feeding itself on everything it can use without any feeling of obligation. What you've said implies, I think, that even if a composer today saw music as a religious calling, and chose to keep himself apart from the professional situation and from musical politics, he would still be discovered and discussed and imitated before very long. And worse, he would probably get more publicity for being a religious figure. In other words, the composer today can't go very long without having to contend with his own image. Well, this is something that Rilke was always running away from. In fact, I think there's a legend that he feigned his death in order to be left in peace to work. It's certainly more in keeping with the temperament of a painter or a poet, but it's something new for the composer to face. He'd better face it, or he's finished. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Max. So um, in case we have listeners, Bill, that have tuned in midway through this interview, would you uh, mind uh, doing your explanation again for us? Sure. Uh, you've just heard or heard half of whatever the case may be of a performance by myself doing a piece 
by Robert Ashley called Morton Feldman Says, and I'm you was know, you know doing the voice of Morton Feldman, a friend of mine. Very well, I, I imagine you seem to do it with some authenticity. I think. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much. I tried. Um, actually, in, in uh, well, let me finish the explanation. Yeah. Uh, and this was uh, uh, Robert Ashley had taped uh, an, in a conversation he had with Morton Feldman back in 1964, and then uh, Morty was asked to uh, provide an article for a magazine and didn't want to write it. Uh, so he asked uh, Bob to transcribe the tape, which Bob did. And having done all that work, he decided that he would uh, make a piece out of it. And, and this is a very, very much part of Bob uh, Ashley's work, is that uh, he's really made a you know, number of great operas based on the spoken voice and exactly how it uh, can acquire a musicality in mm-hmm. various ways. And um, so this was an exa- early example of his uh, concern with uh, spoken uh, human voice as a musical uh, you know, instrument, so to speak. Right. So. Uh, so you said 1964. Yeah, is this that... is 1964. Do you? Uh, well, you're a composer who's been working for how long? Would you say? Well, about 40 years, I guess. So, with that perspective, would you? First of all, do, do you think? Do, do you agree with uh, Morton Feldman's assessment of, of the state of the young composer? I guess you were a young composer when he, <laughs> when he authored this. Yeah, actually, I was a very young composer when that was going on. Uh, in fact, I, I arrived in New York in 62 and, uh, with my guitar and my cat, uh, <laughs> set on actually not being a composer, but I was originally a flamenco guitarist in the village. Oh, wow. My name was uh, Guillermo Brillante, <laughs> which is a literal translation of William Hellerman into Spanish. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so at that time, I was just beginning to compose. And uh, ironically, I wound up by a, a tremendous, unbelievable good fortune studying with uh, Stefan Volpe, who was a teacher of Morton Feldman, hmm. which had a lot to do with Morty and I becoming friends. But... Um, it is an interesting, you know, as I'm doing the piece, I'm, I'm aware of, uh, on the one hand, how awkward, let's say, it must be for people today to realize what a deal it was, chance, right. and chance music. And Cajun has had a tremendous impact, I think, in all the arts. And his ideas of chance are one thing. And I think Morty made it pretty clear that he felt it wasn't so much the idea of chance, but that Cage, in his writings, it's so clear that he lived a whole kind of Zen acceptance of randomness, mm-hmm. acceptance of uh, rejoicing in the way things are, and rejection of the uh, obsession with uh, making everything better. Right. And that... Uh, and what an impact this had on and many American as well. He's focusing on Europeans, Boulez and Stockhausen, because mm-hmm. they were the dominant uh, leaders. And uh, I, I think you can sense a defensiveness in the tone of the you know, piece. I yeah, just absolutely. Did. Yeah, <laughs> and that somehow or another, on the one hand, that uh, you know, well, basically the main point is that they missed the point, right? In his opinion, right? And that he really lets them have it with both barrels but uh, at the same time it's you know Morty's you know very much of an intellectual himself 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As the quotes reveal. And he's very, uh, I guess you would say, a very well-grounded in a European framework. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's quoting Rilke. Exactly. Peggy, whom I don't think anybody listening today has probably heard of. And, well, maybe they have. I shouldn't be that presumptuous. But he's not a you know, major figure. Yeah, I don't know him. Uh, he's a French uh, sociologist, a political science, I think, okay. scientist, you might call him today. But uh, at any rate, it's uh, it's still pertinent, I think, in, in a strange way, is because of of the dynamic of that he starts off with of uh, you know, what do you take from the past, right? And the minute you're doing that consciously, you are, in some sense of the term, caught up in. Power struggle, a political power struggle. Yeah, well, of course, I'm as I'm listening, I'm thinking obsessively about this, I, these ideas, and this conversation in the context of what we're trying to do here on the station in terms of transmission arts, and also uh-huh. as a an arts organization that's trying to really cultivate and define this um, and authenticate this as a as a contemporary. Uh, art genre, and we have this book coming out that's tracing a genealogy, and so there is this sort of focus on the past. I think in terms of creating evidence for the genre, but there's something else that's so inevitably present about the idea of transmission art and being on the airwaves and the kind of ephemerality of that, the transientness of that. That I sort of felt like, okay, I can agree with Feldman, and you know. The pe- artists who are working within the context of transmission, he wouldn't be so critical of, I think. Well, you know, it's an interesting you know, area for discussion you bring up because, and I was thinking of that myself, it's, it's the bias that is going on in this conversation uh, in 64 is so clearly still rooted in the notion of music as something written on a piece of paper mm-hmm. that, you know, is a composition. I mean, of course, people are aware of jazz and, you know, Various things that are improvisational, uh, often thought of later on as real-time composition. They were trying to clarify the fact that they're not random, you know, improvisatory in the sense of uh, grasping at straws. Right. But <laughs> which sometimes. Sometimes, is, yes. Sometimes, yes. I, but, uh, and then it is, I, I wonder, I don't think, and... Uh, Morty wasn't that involved, uh, but Bob certainly was with electronic and media mm-hmm. and stuff. And that, I mean, now it's it seems so anachronistic to even be talking about a musical score. Yeah, yeah. That, that somehow I just don't really think the you know energies are there, e- even among many people of you know, my generation. That, or in terms uh, of conventional ideas of musical score, I think there is this kind of obsession of the idea of score and revisiting what that can mean, uh-huh. uh, which is sort of interesting. Well, in my own work, I mean, I, I actually got quite, uh, I don't know how you would put it, but uh, perhaps by accident launched the term sound art because I, I curated the first you know, sculpture show of uh, sound art in the city and used the term. It seemed like a natural to me. Actually, I guess, you know, ironically derived from Tonkunst, mm-hmm. which is the German you know, a literal uh, you know, translation back into German. And it just made perfect sense. And preceding show was recorded at Wave Farms WGXC in the Hudson Valley in New York State.